This is TechSnap, episode 409, for August 9th, 2019. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting Systems, Network, and Administration Podcast. My name is Wes, and I'm joined once again by Jim. Welcome back, Jim. What's up, everybody? I'm not an iOS user these days, but I know many people around me who are. And occasionally, I'm a bit jealous of the impressive levels of integrations and connectedness features, ability to send files back and forth between various Apple devices. It's all very slick. This week, I saw a great breakdown over at Hexway that talks a little bit more about all the information that's revealed behind the scenes to make all that work. And I'm not sure, is this a feature or a bug? Well, it depends on your perspective. I certainly think it's a gigantic bug, but um, you know, it, it's a bug that's introduced along with features that at least presumably a lot of people want. Uh, people want to be able to just quickly and easily and pretty arbitrarily fling a file from one phone to another, you know, when they're in each other's near vicinity. And um, you, there's there's really not uh, any good way to make that easy without also introducing a lot of security problems. Now, in this case, I'm guessing you're talking about the work that the folks over at Hexway.io did in documenting BLE packets on iPhones. Exactly. Am I right in thinking that if I have Bluetooth turned on on any of my Apple devices, then everyone nearby can see stuff about my device like battery, device name, Wi-Fi status, and also get my phone number? How does that work? Yeah, the phone number thing, you know, that, that's the part that really gets me. Um, I, I'm not that worried about somebody being able to see how much battery I have available, you know, other than possibilities for just trolling your friends, you know, walk up to somebody in a coffee shop and be like, come on, loser, charge your phone. But the phone number thing, that's, that's kind of a big deal. So the problem here is that if you've got Bluetooth enabled, then you've pretty much got AirDrop enabled. And for AirDrop to work, it has to send out these packets called Bluetooth LE. Uh, this is specific to iOS, and these packets are what make AirDrop sharing possible. Um, and the issue is that in addition to you know what you expect to do with that, actually be able to use AirDrop to share files to people directly from phone to phone, not using the internet, um, supposedly this is also anonymous. Like, you know, you don't really even need to know that other person or give them any special access. But of course, in the machine world, you know, there may be more than just a couple of iPhones around. So the machines actually have to be able to do a good job of identifying one another and make sure that the phone that, you know, one user is sending a, a file or a picture to, uh, really is the one that they intend to. So. Bluetooth LE sends all this information as a way of fingerprinting these phones. And, you know, again, I'm not too worried about the battery, but the fact that it, it ties in both the device name and the mobile phone number is really concerning. That means that, you know, somebody who's up to no good could literally just walk through a coffee shop, uh, you know, with an app open that's, that's exploiting the availability of this data and say, oh, I see, you know, Angie's iPhone and here's the phone number for that phone. And now I've got this cute girl's number. This is how stalking happens. Right. I don't think that many users really realize setting the name of your device to something personal about you. Well, that's getting broadcast all around you all the time. 
and that's another one of those things that um, it, it's just it's an interesting cultural difference between the Android and the Apple ecosystem. And again, you know, you can look. This as either a feature or a bug. Apple really goes out of their way to say, "Hey, here's this feature that we made, and we really want you to use it, and we're going to go well out of our way to show you this thing and tell you how great it is and how much it will improve your life and you know how to do that thing." So, you know, you see AirDrop getting used all the time, whereas, you know, similar sharing techniques that have been available for quite some time on the Android ecosystem, like using, uh, you know, near field communication, NFC, you can tap phones to, you know, send a file in between. You literally just tap the two phones together and, you know, they say, oh, hey, there's this phone. Do you want to do the thing? And you can. But over in the Android world, you know, no, nobody's really like shoving this down your throat and showing you an ad with models that are doing this and laughing and having an incredible time and making you be like, hey, I want to share files, too. Um, over in the Apple world, because, you know, these features are so heavily evangelized, you see almost everybody setting things up that they can set up on Android phones, but they wouldn't. And, you know, the device name is one of those things. Um very, I, I don't encounter hardly any Android devices that really broadcast, uh, you know, a personally identifiable host name. Um, you know, you'll see like Android-88345 on your network or uh, more frequently, like in my case, uh, my Pixel devices, they're stealth. They don't broadcast a, a host name at all, period. But over in the Apple world, I, I don't think I've ever seen an iPhone or an iPad that didn't have a name that that person had picked out, which is usually, you know, uh, Janine's iPad or, you know, Steve's iPhone, something that really ties, you know, that device to that person, you know, this is who that is. So again, when you tie that availability directly to the phone number, there's just, there's a lot of potential for stalking there. To get into some of the nitty gritty details. Okay, I get that they're broadcasting the name of the device, but Apple's not really just sending the plain text phone number out, right? No, they're not. They're sending a SHA-256 hash, but I mean, that's not worth anything. It's not salted. It's just a SHA-256 hash of the phone number. It's um, reversible is not quite the right word, but uh, let's say you live in Los Angeles and, you know, almost everybody you encounter is going to have, you know, one of what, about uh, maybe 10 area codes. So you basically, you just need a rainbow table of all the possible uh, combinations of phone number under, you know, 213, 310, 323, and so on. You create a rainbow table, which is just, you know, a 256, SHA-256 hashes of each one of those phone numbers. You have that in a relatively small lookup table. And now when you capture that SHA-256 hash from somebody's phone, you run it through the rainbow table, you immediately get a result in plain text. This is that person's phone number. You're done. Right. And I can see that being applicable whether you're targeting a specific individual or you, you know, might already know likely area codes, or if you're in an area and can guess that many of the phones around you have the area code that you're in. Or honestly, um, you know, it's we're we're still not talking about a very large number of rows here. Um, it, it's not at all inconceivable that somebody that is really invested in you know doing this kind of thing, and I don't mean invested like they're making money from it. I just mean you know they're they're geeking out on it. It's their hobby. There is no reason somebody could not create a rainbow table for all area codes. If you're motivated, it's pretty darn easy. All right. Well, if I don't use these features and maybe I'm a little concerned about all that information being exposed, is there anything I can do? Turn Bluetooth off. 
or better yet, uh, ditch your iPhone, get an Android device. To be clear, this show not sponsored by Google. Or, you know, hey, I'll just throw this out here. Wait a little longer for the uh, Purism devices come out and get yourself a pure Linux smartphone. Speaking of phones, there's been a renewed push by the U.S. government to impose vectors in encryption commonly used on mobile devices in apps like Signal, Telegram, and WhatsApp. I noticed an interesting article this week talking about a different kind of filtering Facebook has proposed. Yeah, Wes, you know, it's kind of crazy. Um, Facebook and Apple and, you know, uh, all these other companies, they they tend to be pretty resistant to countries asking for encryption backdoors uh, to be able to track down dissidents or what have you, as well they should. However, Facebook has shown us what they really care about. Uh, they are going to backdoor WhatsApp so that they can moderate content. Right. And as we've talked about before, it's pretty difficult, perhaps one would say impossible, to have some sort of magical backdoor that only the government can access. So in this case, Facebook's not questioning that. They haven't invented some magical new technology. Facebook's basically sidestepped some of the traditional routes here. What's happening is WhatsApp in this scheme will download a bunch of blacklist filtering algorithms from the cloud on onto your app, right? The app syncs this down itself. And then it runs on ClearText. So before you send a message and whenever you've received a message after it's decrypted, these algorithms run, test against the filter set, and then decide if you're allowed to receive or send that message. What's obviously worrying is once that system's in place, well, of course, the government's going to demand that a few extra filters be added. And... Facebook's noted, once they detect violations, well, they're going to send the clear text of any violating messages right back up to Facebook, bypassing any encryption. So we could imagine, you know, perhaps somebody might decide that anything referring to, oh, I don't know, Bashar al-Assad is, you know, content that should be filtered and watched and checked. And, you know, now you've got a nice, handy, centralized database of all conversations about that sitting at Facebook available to be subpoenaed by the government. Yeah, it's also a reminder that you can't really trust these closed-source clients to supposed end-to-end encryption systems, right? If you don't know what code is running, you never know what they're doing with the text you enter. Yeah, you mentioned open-source there, Wes, and that's a great point. And we should mention the alternative to WhatsApp if you truly care about end-to-end encryption you absolutely should use an open source application where people can verify that the code does what it says it should do. And uh, the obvious choice there would be Signal. Signal is an open source project and it's supported by grants and donations, not by revenue from advertising or affiliate marketing or anything like that. So, you know, I, I also do want to make the point again that if you've never seen the XKCD about the $10 wrench, you should absolutely read it if you're, you know, really serious about encryption and privacy. Because a lot of people get tripped up uh, worrying too much about the technology and not enough about their own operational security. But again, as far as technical security goes, you can't beat an open source project with code that is heavily reviewed and audited by a lot of people. And that's Signal. And as you said earlier, Jim, this has a lot to do about culture. So I think the more of us that do use encrypted communication, even while considering what our actual threat models may be, which you're quite right about, 
then the more it's the norm and the less the government's case of, you know, only evil mastermind criminals use this technology is valid. Once you've got your communications secured, well, you'll probably also want to keep your web browsing secure and private. Jim, you noticed an interesting research paper coming out of Microsoft and Carnegie Mellon talking about some of the downsides of thinking incognito mode will keep you safe. Yeah, kind of. Um, incognito mode was was only touched on in the paper. The, the big concern there was whether your porn viewing habits are getting tracked by mainstream advertisers and data brokers like Facebook and, uh, believe it or not, Oracle. I, I kind of got my back up a little bit because the the researchers just tossed out that, oh, and, you know, incognito mode won't help. They can still see exactly who you are and what you've done. And I was like, well, no, that's not how incognito mode works at all. Because uh, as anybody who's really looked at this stuff ought to know, when you go into incognito mode or private or in private, depending on your choice of browser, they all do the same major thing, which is they they disable access to all of the cookies on your computer. So this basically breaks you off from all the normal tracking telemetry. Now, sites are allowed to set new cookies on incognito or private tabs or browser windows, but they're not connected to anything else. Those cookies will disappear once that incognito session is up, and you can't read any of the uh, you know more permanent cookies on your computer to directly tie you know your one presence on the internet to the other. Right, and these kind of arose as replacements of users clearing all those cookies manually after they'd looked at some things that they might not like to have in their history. Exactly. And, you know, to be fair, that really was more the original intent of incognito mode was basically to avoid leaving your local browser, you know, junked up and make it obvious to the next person who sat at the computer that you'd been looking at, you know, whatever disreputable website you might have been looking at. Or, or or buying them gifts, Jim. We're, we're buying a lot of our friends and loved ones surprise gifts. Absolutely. You know, we're we're buying them gifts and didn't want to see those Amazon Earls in the history. Anyway, so yeah, you, you don't you don't have uh, things that you visit in incognito show up in your local history. You also don't have telltale cookies that will give it away, uh, you know, when somebody has the IT guy look over your computer and see what you've been doing. Um People did pretty quickly find other great uses for incognito mode. Uh, I use it pretty frequently. Um, actually, I'll use it to double check whether Google has over-personalized search results for me because incognito breaks that chain of cookies that you know tells the data brokers exactly who you are. It means that you no longer get personalized search results. So if I were to just you know Google myself, I just open up a tab and Google Jim Salter and it's my normal browser, I'll get personalized results and I may get a lot more stuff that's actually about me. If I want to know what people in general would see, then I can open up an incognito tab and then do the same Google. And because I've broken that chain of cookies, now I will get a generic result rather than one that's been personalized. So it's really good for doing that kind of research. It is also still, it's it's a good way to break that chain so that it's not just immediately obvious to any we'll just go out on a limb and say porn site that, you know, happens to have a Facebook tracker on it or an Oracle tracker or a Google tracker. Um, it won't immediately connect you with the same tracking that it's done in your normal browser usage. 
However, that doesn't mean it's absolutely impossible for them to do that. There are browser fingerprinting techniques they might use that private mode or incognito mode don't address. Right. But as you say, if you're just doing that in your normal browser, well, if you're already logged into these services, they've managed to convince a whole bunch of other sites all over the internet to have their little tracking cookies, pixels, various links back to them and agreements so that you visit that site. And the fact that you visited, well, that's sucked up and sent to Facebook, whether you want it or not. And it's kind of important, I think, to remember the scale of, of what's going on behind the scenes. Maybe that's innocuous in some circumstances, but you're right. Even just being an incognito, that provides less useful information and makes them have to do more work to maintain some sort of identity about you. Absolutely. It's not perfect, but it is a very significant amount of cover, and it does introduce uh, quite a lot of plausible deniability, even if you never take things any further from there, just because, you know, if you didn't go into incognito mode, there's absolutely no question that is who you are. You have the same persistent cookie for everything else you do online. Yeah, that's you that was looking at that. And, you know, that could be a minor embarrassment if you're just like, well, you know, I don't really want third party advertisers that inject ads on Facebook to, you know, base advertising on whether or not, I don't know, maybe I watched threesome porn the other night. Um, that's a mild embarrassment. It's probably not the biggest deal in the world. On the other hand, let's say that you are a gay person who lives in a country that literally has the death penalty for homosexuality. Now the stakes are a whole lot higher and you absolutely are going to want to have as much plausible deniability and chaff in between you and anything that might indicate your sexual orientation as you can manage. And again, incognito mode is not, you know, the be all end all on this. It won't defeat direct targeted, you know, nation state or significant adversary, uh, you know, snooping on you, but it definitely does a lot to keep you off the radar. My favorite thing about this story the example name used in the research is Jack. But moving on, you mentioned that, okay, incognito, it's not perfect. And one of the reasons is because of what's known as browser fingerprinting. What does that mean, Jim? So there's a lot of techniques you can use to try to identify somebody by the characteristics that their browser makes available. You know, kind of like what we were talking about in the iPhone story, where you can just sort of, you know, look at a device and get information about it and get some kind of idea of what that device is. The mechanism is different, but there's a lot of ways that you can profile a browser as well. There's the, you know, the most obvious method is the user agent. Your browser is probably going to identify itself as, you know, Chrome or Firefox or God help you edge, uh, you know, with a particular build version number and maybe the architecture of your system. It may even identify what plugins or extensions you have installed. So something like looking at the user agent, uh, it's a good trick. It's enough to start building a profile. It's not generally going to be enough to uniquely identify somebody. And it's also fairly easy to block. Browsers used to be a lot more forthcoming than they are now with things like that. Uh, I specifically tested this kind of thing by browsing to my own website and, you know, going through the logs and seeing what was reported for user agent string. And where, you know, four or five years ago, a browser would just tell a, a server everything it might want to know in the user agent. Right. It's whole life story. Yeah. These days, it, it's generally pretty much just limited to, you know, uh, the operating system version, the machine architecture, 
uh, the name of the browser and what build it is, which is not going to be enough to get you very far. User agents are also very easy to spoof. So that was our original concern. Not so much a big deal today. Uh, there are quite a few things that you can look at, including the IP address. But what I thought was absolutely the most interesting technique, uh, there's two different sets of fingerprints that you can get that are basically, they're based around how much real estate there is in your browser's view window. And you might think this would be pretty simple. And, you know, one browser on a 1920 by 1080 monitor would look the same as another browser on some completely different 1920 by 1080 monitor. Most of the time, right, the stuff's used for laying out and, and rendering the page. You think that would be exactly the same. Turns out, though, that's not the case. I don't really understand all the technical details as to why. But when I tested this directly using um, the EFF has this great test site called Panopticlick. You can go to panopticlick.eff.org and it will check to see how unique your browser is, how well it can be fingerprinted. And what I found is that all of the computers in my house had a unique Canvas fingerprint hash and a unique WebGL fingerprint hash. Um, even two Ubuntu 18.04 LTS machines, both with two monitors with 1080p resolutions, the same browser and the same set of extensions. I don't really understand why, but they had different hashes. Okay, so am I right in thinking the threat here then is computing one of these hashes using some JavaScript that just shows up on the page means you can have a consistent ID shared between incognito and regular browsing. That sounds bad. Is this actually being used? Is this deployed by the big marketing and advertising sites? Nobody really knows. Um, I, I looked and I looked and tried to find some concrete information on who absolutely is or absolutely is not using Canvas or WebGL fingerprinting techniques, and I came up with nothing. There's a lot of discussion about how these tools can be used. There's a lot of demonstration sites like EFF's Panopticlick, um, you know, where, where you can see what it looks like when it's used and it will actually do that for you. But as to whether that is being used by Google or Facebook or Oracle or, you know, somebody that we haven't even thought of, I just don't know. And the danger here is that, you know, what these data brokers could do if they decided to use these techniques is they can just add that WebGL or Canvas hash uh, you know, to their persistent tracking cookies that you use in your normal profiles. And you have to understand the incredibly elevated perspective they're looking down on this data from. Uh, they're already tracking you as uh, across the entire internet in a time series. They know when you go from one site to the next site to the next by following, you know, these, these identifications that are in these cookies that are accessible from all these sites. Um, the danger here is that if they're also tracking your Canvas hash or your WebGL hash, and now you open up an incognito tab, well, now they can, with a high degree of reliability, they can tie that, that browsing that you do during that incognito session directly to the rest of the browsing that you're doing outside of it using that hash. Right. It may not be obvious, but there's a huge amount of resources being poured into these kinds of problems, right? Whether it's advertising or just legitimate customer data, it's a huge business problem to try to unify concepts of people, identities across data sets. And there's a lot of tools and expertise available to try to do just that. Yeah. And, you know, to be fair, uh, this is not 2010 anymore. 
And all these companies, uh, you know, even Oracle to some degree, you know, they, they talk about it, say, oh, you know, we're not going to personally identify you by any of this stuff. It's anonymized. There's no personally identifiable information to tie it to your real identity. It's just a profile, bro. But, uh, you know, what we have seen over that same decade that more and more companies have, you know, started saying, hey, we're making this effort to anonymize all your data. We keep discovering that every time they try to do it, no, it's not really anonymized. Um, it's, it gets maybe a little bit more difficult. It's not as simple as, OK, well, this person's, you know, real name is directly in this profile. But um, big data these days is a really scary, really capable topic. And when you've got terabytes of data that you can do a MapReduce on in Hadoop, you can generally reconstruct a lot of this information that's supposedly being stripped out to anonymize these profiles. I know Apple has made some steps here so that Safari will try to return the most generalized information about the Mac you're using that it can. Am I right in hearing that Firefox may be adding a feature to do something similar? Yes and no. Um, Firefox is absolutely making efforts to strip down the amount of information returned. Uh, Safari has done that also. Neither of them have directly addressed the Canvas and WebGL fingerprinting problem, which is, in my opinion, by far the biggest smoking gun. Um, you know, you can trim down what's returned in a user agent. You can nerf an API here or there that you've directly seen, okay, well, you know, this can give you too much information, you know, yada, yada, yada. But um, in order to not return a WebGL hash, you have to disable the WebGL API entirely, which means now you can't view any WebGL content. That's going to break a lot of games. It's going to break a lot of interactive menus on sites. In short, you know, it's, it's going to make a lot of the internet not as much fun as it was, and people aren't going to stand for that. The hash itself is not something that a site needs, but the site does need the canvas information. That tells the site what your screen resolution is, what kind of real estate you've got available. And with modern responsive websites that look completely different in, you know, a phone versus a tablet versus a laptop with a crappy 1366 by 768 display versus somebody with 1080p or 4K, you have to be able to see what the canvas is in order to do that. Right. You can't draw the correct things if you don't know what the screen looks like. Yeah. So you can't just say, no, we're disabling that API. You can no longer find the canvas. So unfortunately, no, none of the things that Safari or Firefox has done to date do anything to address the uh, the canvas or WebGL fingerprint problem. Is there anything else you recommend doing if you're concerned about this sort of thing? You know, Firefox, for instance, has their uh, popular containers feature. Many people may use a VPN to try to keep their identity safe. What do you find effective? Uh, it's a really loaded question. Yes, it is. There's, you know, there's there's pros and there's cons to anything that you that you might try to do when you're really, really going into full on secret squirrel mode and trying to be, you know, as secretive and private as possible. Um, I will say that uh, on Firefox, there is definitely a way to defeat both Canvas fingerprinting and WebGL fingerprinting, there's an app called Canvas Blocker that you can install. Uh, I'm sorry, not an app. There's a, a plugin called Canvas Blocker. Um, Canvas Blocker is uh, an open source plugin. Uh, there is a GitHub repo for it. You can go and look and see what the code is and what it does. Uh, the short version is every time a site requests your Canvas or WebGL information in a way that would fingerprint it, 
Canvas Blocker just injects a little bit of random noise. So it's not actually blocking. What it's really doing is throwing out chaff. So every time a site asks for a fingerprint of your Canvas or your WebGL information, it's going to get something back that's a little bit different. It's still usable to build the site. Uh, it does not break any actual functionality as far as I've been able to tell from using the plugin. It just screws up fingerprinting. Now, with that said, uh, you'll find people that will say, oh, well, that's the worst thing you can do because now your fingerprint changes a little bit every time you visit a site, and that's going to make you stick out like a sore thumb. Of course, the other thing there is they still have to be able to tie all those things together. This is a lot of variables to keep track of. It is a lot of variables, yeah. And they may be able to do that using your IP address during that session. Uh, you know, then you go a step further down the rabbit hole and say, okay, well, then I need to have a VPN for my super secret, you know, private browser time. And the other thing about that is that means you need to only use that VPN, which will camouflage your IP address when you're doing your secret scroll stuff. Because if you're browsing in normal tabs and in private tabs from the same VPN IP address, well, now you've, you know, potentially you may very well be tying that time series data together in a way that they can piece together who you are. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, that VPN, and this is something that the editors at Ars Technica would absolutely string me up for. If I said in an Ars Technica article, you're going to have to use a commercial VPN, a third party VPN with tons and tons of users on it. If you just use something that you've spun up on DigitalOcean, well, then that's that's the that's just yours. Yeah, it makes it worse because now instead of you doing your browsing from some residential IP address that may even be dynamic, like if you're on a DSL provider, you know, that may change every 24 hours. It becomes more difficult to tie that to you. Now you have to subpoena the IP information, you know, potentially from the ISP, yada, yada, yada. Well, now you're coming, you know, from an IP address at DigitalOcean or Linode or whoever that, you know, belongs directly to you. It's it's really going to stick out like sore thumb. So in this case, you know, if you want this anonymization effect, you actually do have to trust a third party VPN provider so that you can be one of a herd of thousands all using this same IP address. And now it truly does become a lot more difficult to tie, you know, one person to another. Now you've, you know, you've thrown a lot of chaff over the value of IP tracking. You use the canvas blocker to throw a lot of chaff over the value of fingerprinting. Also, again, ideally, you're now only going to use the canvas blocker in your private session because you don't want people to be able to tie together the fairly uncommon usage of, you know, this person's fingerprint changes every single page load. You don't want that to be happening in the same time series from the same general area in the same vague sets of interest that might tie those two things together. So if it's not clear already, you really have to jump through a lot of hoops if you're serious about completely breaking any connection between your private browsing and your public browsing. But again, with all that said, you know, this is if you are super, super duper serious about it. In the meantime, while it is absolutely not perfect, just using private mode and using a canvas blocker, it really does go a long way. You may also want to consider what browser you're using, right, Jim? Because we've seen Google making some, let's say, suspicious moves around enabling ad blockers to work in their browser, despite the fact that they've also just enabled ad blocking built right in. That's kind of a whole nother kettle of fish. It doesn't really have much to do with your choice of browser as far as privacy goes. Um, 
Because, you know, if you're really serious about privacy and using extensions to get it, you're not going to be content with an ad blocker. You're going to be using something like a ghostry or privacy badger, uh, which is a lot more aggressive about trying to scrub all these cookies out of the web, um, regardless of whether they cause any visual disturbance or slow page load or not. It, it's a different focus. And Google breaking uBlock Origin and uh, potentially AdBlock Plus, which they have declared they're going to do, it's not really going to have any impact on Privacy Badger or Ghostry, as far as I can tell. Um, with that said, it still is going to matter what cho your choice of browser is. If you want to tackle the Canvas fingerprinting problem specifically, while there are plugins or extensions on both Chrome and Firefox that, you know, offer to do this noise injection that keeps you from being, you know, having a, a persistent fingerprint that can be tracked. The the big one that I found on Firefox is one called Canvas Blocker, and it's open source and it has a GitHub repo. I could not find anything open source uh, in Chrome's App Store. There were several plugins, but it's all just random plugin from some person or some company you've never heard of that fewer than 10,000 people have installed. So, eh. hmm, yeah, you're taking a different sort of risk already there. You mentioned these Chrome updates breaking the popular uBlock origin. I thought I saw something saying maybe the details aren't quite right. I know there were some limits on the proposed new API. Can you explain to me what's going on here, Jim? Yeah, there's been a lot of back and forth on this, but I think the most interesting comment I've seen on it was from uh, Gorehill, you know, the, the guy who's behind uBlock origin. Um, it took a while to figure out exactly what the implications were going to be, but the blocking ability, the web request API is still deprecated. Um, Chrome's very limited matching algorithm will still be the only one possible and with limits that Google dictates. And it seems pretty clear that they specifically want those limits to make ad blocking less possible or impossible. Now, the, you know, the one thing that I found really interesting in his comments down towards the bottom, he says that uh, in order for Google Chrome to reach its current user base, it had to support content blockers. These are the most popular extensions for any browser. Google's strategy has been to find the optimal point between the two goals of growing the user base of Chrome and preventing content blockers from harming its advertising business. The blocking ability of the web request API caused Google to yield control of blocking to the content blockers and the third party. But now that Chrome is the dominant browser, it's in a better position to shift that optimal point between the two goals back towards Google ad business. Deprecating the blocking ability of web request gains this control back to Google, since now the exact filters applied to the web page is information that Chrome can collect and send back to Google itself. Now, the other thing that I found really interesting here is he notes that uh, IO GmbH, who's that's the owner of AdBlock Plus, you know the the biggest competing plugin to uBlock Origin for content filtering. I didn't realize this, but they are a business partner of Google through Google's Acceptable Ads business plan, and this means that AdBlock Plus's business shares some of the same characteristics as Google's. It gets revenue from displaying ads of the people with whom it has a contract to allow those ads through. It also expressly names uBlock Origin as a risk factor to its business. And here's the thing that kills me. Now, I, I was a former AdBlock Plus user that um, was the bee's knees back before uBlock Origin was a thing. And it has this feature, you know, of allowing acceptable ads through. 
And, you know, I really bought into that concept, you know, yeah, at the time, this was largely referring to, you know, Google's acceptable ads, which 10 or 15 years ago meant, you know, text only stuff that's injected in the page, uh, you know, with like a border around it that clearly delineates it as an ad, but there's no punch the monkey crap. It's not autoplaying video with sound. Exactly. It's not obnoxious. And I was like, yes, I do want to allow these responsible advertisements through. I want advertisers to get the message that if they're not jerks, they can actually get their ad in front of my eyeballs. And that's fine. The thing that really got me here is Gore Hill says that one of the people that Adblock Plus has a contract with to allow the ads through is the Taboola Network. Uh, Wes, I don't know if you're familiar with Taboola Network, but um, I became familiar with them in the dark days before Firefox Mobile started allowing, you know, plugins, including uBlock Origin. And I just was seeing the Internet raw dog on my phone and tablet. And uh, oh, my God, those are the most obnoxious. You know, they're the ads down at the bottom of like some second rate blog or whatever that your friend links on Facebook. And you get down to the bottom of the page and there's just this gallery of just incredible uh, you know, eyeball bait stuff that like you want to click on it. Oh yes, the well chosen, the well chosen stock photo and and the clickbait headline that makes you curious about just what that weird thing going on is. Yeah, and the photos are so well chosen that you know you're a cynic, you're a realist, you know it's garbage, you know it's not going to be satisfying, but even though you hate yourself, you click it anyway because you want to see more of that. And you're hoping there will be more. And what you find is you not only don't get more of what you're looking for, but when you click that link that supposedly goes to this one thing in this one picture, what you actually get is this entire page of just more ad farm for Taboola advertising partners, one of which eventually is the thing that you click the picture for hoping to go to. And you can click to go to that, but it's also going to be incredibly low content garbage that you get absolutely no value out of. And those things were just everywhere. Taboola Network is pervasive. It's terrible. It's literally the exact last kind of ad I would consider acceptable as something I'm willing to see. So, yeah, seeing that Adblock Plus has a contract to allow those things through, that's awful. Well, that unhappy note will bring us to the end of today's episode of TechSnap. But don't worry, you can find more over at TechSnap.Systems. Over there, you'll find the whole back catalog, as well as easy ways to subscribe or get in touch. If you'd like to watch all the other fine programs produced by Jupiter Broadcasting, well, that's easy, too. JupiterBroadcasting.com has them all. It also has the calendar, which will tell you when we're doing these shows live. We do Linux Unplugged live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Come check it out. It's a lot of fun. And if you like this show, well, you might also like BSD Now, our sister show run by Alan Jude, previously of TechSnap fame, and covers all things BSD. If somehow none of that's enough, well, don't worry, you can find Jim writing over at ours, and he's also on Twitter. Jim, you're at JRSSNet. I'm there too, at West Payne, and the whole network is at Jupiter Signal. Thank you so much for joining us. Bye, everybody. We'll see you in a couple weeks. 